0: Sometimes you have to look at your business. So if you have a product or an idea, you have to be deathly passionate about it. But sometimes you have to step back and think nobody cares because that's the problem. People get caught up in thinking it's all so important Mm -hmm. that they lose sight of where it places in the big picture.
1: What's up guys? Welcome to the Invictus Mindset Podcast. I've got former pro volleyball player, athlete, and mom with me, Miss Gabby Reese. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show and thank you so much for making time for us to come spend some time with you. Uh, That's my honor. (laughs) Before we dive into today's interview, I want to share a cool little story with our audience as to um, one of my favorite experiences with you was my first time visiting you guys here in Malibu for an XPT experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm in the pool... And I'm already struggling with a 35-pound dumbbell. Mm-hmm. And you're like, no, 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 you're super athlete. He's been to the CrossFit Games. He has a 55. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to do the, um, what's it called, where you swim across with the dumbbell across your chest?
0: I gave you a 55 with an ammo?
1: Yeah. Wow. On day one. So I, I don't know if maybe... I, I must ma- have seen something, though. Maybe. That's
0: what you have to realize is I have done it a few times, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm us- I'm not setting you up for failure.
1: I really appreciated it, though, because I thought it was so cool, like... I got to experience Gabby Reese, the coach in that moment. Mm. Right. And like, I knew you as the athlete. And Mm -hmm. so to get that time with you was so cool. And like my number one asset when I think of you is that you're real and you're authentic. And that's one of the things that really gravitated me towards wanting to come up here and spend some time with you guys and interview you for the Invictus Mindset podcast.
0: I was raised in the Caribbean, in mm-hmm. the Virgin Islands. I think that lends itself to it. I also think living with Laird for the almost 25 years, there's not a lot of those layers. Mm-hmm. Like, I think if I even started to be weird that way, somebody would definitely tell me, like, at night, like, what what were you doing? What was that? Yeah. <laughs> so I just, I don't know. It feels like it works. And to be honest, I think when you have a job... You know, I was 18 when I started, you know, modeling and I was playing volleyball in college and then started, I became a professional volleyball player at 22 and I think what you see really quickly, first coming from sports, it makes it easier. You're, you're given a little more freedom to just be kind of how you are,
2: mm-hmm.
0: I feel. And then the other side of that is you go, oh, I am, you know, an imperfect person. So if I portray that, I call it painting yourself in the corner. It'd mm-hmm. be like if you painted a room and that, but you somehow painted yourself in the corner and then you were stuck with nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And I think really early on, it just seemed easier to kind of be like, here it is. I like that. And then, like I said, it gets reinforced. Living I, think it, with somebody I think it's like really Laird.
1: cool, you know, in the modern day where we're in an age of social media, right, where people can paint themselves in that lens however mm-hmm. they want. Yeah. But to realize how real and organic both you and Laird are is just so incredibly special. And so, before we dive in and kind of unpack some of your many layers, I just wanted to thank you for for, oh. for spending some time with us. Oh well, wow. um, like
0: I said, it's my honor. You know, it's like if people want to spend time with you and ask you questions, and they're at all interested in you, I think it's really important to recognize that as it's a gift back, really, to the person. So
1: absolutely. And so, wh- where did your athletic career kind of begin? You you talked about growing up in the Caribbean mm-hmm. and. You know what? What was your childhood like, and how did that funnel you into both modeling and volleyball?
0: I think every person, for the most part, has some kind of w- interesting story in their childhood. I just think that's who we are. Even if it's like my parents were together and we grew up in the same house and everyone was pretty happy, you go, "Wow, that's a really interesting story, right? Mm-hmm. That's unusual." My parents, my father uh, is from Trinidad, uh, was from Trinidad, and my mother's from New York, and they met in California, Marina Del Rey, oddly. Oh, nice. I probably at a party. And then I was sort of born, I th- you know, you have to remember, it was the late 60s. So mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of like, you know, freedom going on. Mm-hmm. And so my parents really were not together for too long. Then when I was two, I moved with my mom to Mexico City. She was training dolphins in a circus. Wow. what yeah. an experience. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. And then um, I, I got whooping cough. And so my mom was working and she was quite young and her neighborhood friend, like growing up, who married uh, like her high school boyfriend, so she, my mom was neighbors with him, and uh-huh. that's how she met the woman, my Aunt Norette. And mm-hmm. I ended up kind of spending from two to seven in Long Island with my, I call them my Aunt Norette and Uncle Joe. During that time, my father actually passed away when I was five in a plane crash. I'm so sorry. Oh, well, yeah. But, you know, I always say that loss is different because it was not somebody that you saw every day. So then when my mom, when I turned seven, my mom remarried my stepfather, who's from Puerto Rico. Oh, wow. And so she, I think, felt more uh, prepared to care for a pretty precocious child and so I moved down to the Virgin Islands and I've said this a lot it's a really a gift to me because my father's culture being West Indian Trinidadian and then I got a chance to grow up in that culture and make that that was became my culture as well I don't know it just gave me different insight uh, maybe to my family that I'm I'm pretty close to on that side and just a different way of thinking and operating versus to
1: varying cultures too.
0: Yeah. And my stepfather being Puerto Rican and and having an abuelita and an abuelito and like spending time in in Puerto Rico. And, and I, again, I just think like when you grow up, we called it the States in Hawaii, they call it the mainland, you know, Mm -hmm. it is a very different mindset and I won't, I won't throw it across the net, but it's sort of, I feel like when you grow up on an island, you don't really have such an intense sense of entitlement. Mm -hmm just a different deal. And also I wasn't aspiring to be or do anything. Quite frankly, it never really occurred to me. And then when I was 15 and going into my junior year of high school, I sort of, I think idle time is a dangerous thing. And so my mother and my stepfather had broken up and my mother decided to move to St. Petersburg, Florida. I had dibble-dabbled like a little bit in sixth grade, a little more in like 10th grade volleyball, it's probably pretty awkward. I was six feet at 12 and six, three at 15. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, you're not like,
1: Oh, I, I have all my moving parts. I'm in control of them. That's probably not the case. And what I did- was that psychologically at a young age, you know, being taller than everybody else. Was that challenging for you or was that just kind of normal for you?
0: Well, it's both, right? Like it was always normal. I was five feet at seven. I was always taller than everybody. My mother's very tall. She was about six, two and a half. So I was around someone very tall. And I actually was always okay with it. It just got old after a while, like everywhere you went, especially when you're a young woman and people think you're much older, that can be uncomfortable because maybe you get sexualized early and like just certain things Mm -hmm. to that where you, you know, you're aware.
1: Mm -hmm. Your guard definitely goes up a little bit sooner.
0: Yeah. And I think you just kind of stick out. But the liberating thing is, is that you sort of go, okay, well, I'm not going to fit in. So I'm not going to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Because really, the interesting thing is, right, you become a young adult, and you're like, Oh, well, how can I be different? And you spend, you know, sort of 12 to 15 or 16 trying to be like everyone else. And so I think I didn't, I never dealt with that. But also being in a place where there was so much diversity. Anyway, I was just like a weird, tall girl. And then um, going to St. Pete, they saw me and it was like, oh, you're going to play sports because if you were, you had any athleticism, I went to this very tiny Christian school, those athletes were gone because they were looking for attention from other schools. Mm-hmm. So they were like this six foot three. And there happened to be a lot of good athletes at that school at that time. So I, I really focused on volleyball. I got introduced to basketball. I had an excellent basketball coach. So I became a better basketball player. Oh, wow. Because he was such a good coach. Very and I cool. was a pretty raw canvas. hmm And then my senior year, I started getting offers, I'd say probably like six to one for basketball, because I went to a BC, like a blue chip camp, Mm -hmm. my um, between my junior and senior year. And so I just had more access. And I played in two club tournaments for volleyball, which isn't in this day and age, it's not very, not very many. But that is where my coach from Florida State saw me. And so I ended up going to Florida State and played volleyball. Wow. And I was 17. And, you know, people had... Seen me when I was 15 when I moved to Florida and said, "Oh, if I wanted to model, I could move to Paris." And da da da. And my mom was like, "Just finish high school." And I really—it's interesting because my middle daughter was, is going to be 17, and you know, she's had her own—you know—challenges. And I said to her, "It's so interesting how, when we're young, how much we change." And I said, "If you met me at the beginning of being 15, just to even like right when I turned 16, I was a really different person." And, and what was the difference was opportunity. Mm-hmm. And structure. I was presented with some opportunities and some real structure and people around me, coaches and such that were like, yeah, we'll, we'll reinforce this. And so it really was really a powerful thing for me. I think by nature, I'm a very disciplined type of person. Mm -hmm. I just didn't have the, the opportunity. I would have been working at a gift shop in St. Thomas if I hadn't, you know, went and and moved to the States and, and play ball. And so I went to college to play volleyball.
1: That's very, very cool. And it sounds like you got into it later on in comparison to other people. And so you were very impressionable and very coachable, which probably was a huge asset to your development in, in volleyball.
0: I think that's everything. I mean, I think people think because I'm tall, oh, that was it. And and I'm decently athletic. But I think what it is, is I, I was like, okay... I can try to figure out what you're saying and turn that into physical motion. And Mm -hmm. I was always open to it. And I also had a very good relationship with my coach in college, who's still a very dear friend of mine today. And I think maybe I was so late, I was so late to the game that I was really interested in paying attention and being a good student so I could try to catch up and make up for so many of my weaknesses in my game. Mm -hmm. Did you
1: know there were weaknesses at the time? Like, Did you have a relationship with failure already or not really?
0: Oh yeah. Like the clearest day for sure.
1: Especially when you're big, right? Like all, it's so glaring. Everything is so wide
0: open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's either like really big and good or it's like, Whoa, what was that? So <laughs> there was a lot of that. And I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, BS myself type of person. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, you're gonna have to work on that.
1: I think that's so healthy though. Like David Goggins talks about the accountability mirror mm-hmm. and looking yourself in the mirror and you seeing you, you can't lie to you. And so many of us do that throughout the course of our lives. And it sounds like you developed that skill at such a young age, which, you know, looking at the success that you've experienced over the last 20 plus years, you know, is just a huge credit to your, your development and your experiences as a young child and being open to, you know, being a sponge and learning from, from the coaches and those around you.
0: You know, I, I think what's really important is, and people listening have to remember this, there are people out there who really want to mentor and help, they Mm -hmm. do, they just need to be asked. Mm -hmm. And the other flip side of that is to have the ability to recognize the gift that it is to have someone who'll invest time in you and Mm -hmm. knowledge and information. Yes, okay, maybe it's a coach who's paid and it's their job, but if if you have somebody who actually cares and is really trying to help you, I think it is one of the most powerful things that we can do for each other. I think if someone's finding themselves in that situation at work, or in a sport to take it in. And, and maybe you don't always agree with their delivery system, right? Like maybe they don't have time to worry about your feelings, especially, you know, in the heat of the moment, like mm-hmm. if you're in sports, or what have you, or critical environment or situation at work, but it's like, try to take the information. Because ultimately, if you all really have the same goal, which is for you to be better, so that all can be better, then who cares how they say it? I mean, if, obviously you don't want it, an abusive situation, but within reason. And I think recognizing like, no, this person who has so much information that can help me, I'm going to, I'm going to really value that. And so I think I did that well. And listen, I didn't have a safety net. You're really good when you have to be, mm-hmm. I think.
1: Yeah. Fear is a great motivator. Huge. I mean, people, are,
0: Oh, and you're, how'd you look down the road? And I was like, yeah, fear. Cause I, I was always looking down the road And then after my freshman year of college, I went into modeling because I could work. Mm -hmm. And that was a way to do it. And it's, you know, if you do it, it can be ridiculous. Like you have no credentials, no skill set. You show up, you seem to be the right look and size. And they go, cool, you can go to France and we'll pay a bunch of money. And I I was like, this would be better than working behind the counter of a
1: gift shop or something like that.
0: So I did that. And then my sophomore year, I went, you know, I went back to school two a days, the whole nine yards. And then after my sophomore season in that December, uh, I gave up my scholarship and I paid to play after that, just so I didn't get into a hassle with the NCAAs. And my coach worked with me then that January, I would go and live in New York and work. And she'd say, okay, then I'd have to come back do summer school to be to jam up on credits to be eligible to compete under NCAA ruling. Mm-hmm. And then I would go back to New York for a little bit and then be back for two a days. And our deal was you can miss spring training. You got to take care of your schoolwork, obviously. And when you're here, you're here. So that meant when I went home for my season, I was
1: not leaving and flying and uh, taking jobs. Wow. How were you able to kind of stay in shape mentally and physically while you were doing the modeling kind of in the off season?
0: Yeah, and they want you to be skinny too. Yeah, And when you bang iron, then you're getting bigger, right? It was like a really fun cycle. You know, I think luckily when you're younger, right, there's a little greater forgiveness. I think I just, I used to say I would come home, it could be February, it'd be cold out. It would be dark early. I'd come home and like get all the makeup off and go to the gym Mm -hmm. and it'd be dark and I would do it. And like I said, I was trying to juggle like, You know, you go to college and you're trying to get as big and strong as you can, and then you're in fashion. And I was already very big for a fashion model. Mm -hmm. And somehow trying to stay, you know, dynamic enough to be an athlete, but then somehow small enough to um, fit into some of the stuff. I mean, Mm -hmm. I barely literally... They used to sew stuff onto me. I mean, it was
1: like... You know, especially when went to Europe, they were laughing. They were like, are, oh, yeah. what are you, crazy? I used to live in Sweden, and I can only yeah. imagine what that was like for you. And over there, they also call it the States. So that, yeah. that's kind of the correlated, States. which is yeah. Cool. And
0: they used to ask me, like, are you the valet? Or you do the model? Like, which is it? And I was like, yeah. And so <laughs> I, I had a great support from my coach, Dr. Cecile Renaud. And she taught me it was all about accountability. It was all about keeping your word. And I was very clear that I was... I was recognizing an opportunity, Mm -hmm. so I wasn't squandering it.
1: That's very cool that you guys developed that relationship for sure. Yeah. What did that do for your relationship with body composition, being Mm -hmm. a young woman, and your relationship with food? You know, that seems to be a very massive challenge for young women these days, especially thrown into the fashion world, and you look at the sports world, and then you look at the body image world. What did that do for you at a young age?
0: You know, I've told this story a few times, but I I just think it's worth telling. So again, I was six foot three. I went into college, like right now sitting here, I'm about 177, right? Went into college probably at about 147. Mm -hmm. I was just, a hadn't banged, hit any iron or done any lifting or anything. And then I left college at like 165. Mm -hmm. Because then also I became a little more mature and Mm -hmm. I started training and things like that. But you would go to work in New York and the girls like these are very beautiful women Mm -hmm. and they were the right size and like it was all okay. And I didn't see a ton of confidence or um, a particular amount of joy or anything. And then I would go to Tallahassee and I'd say I'd go to the gym and my teammates were there and their thighs are big and their butts are big, you know, jumping athletes and maybe they have their skin's not perfect. Maybe everyone's sweaty all the time and the level of confidence and robustness and humor and life, full of life was so much greater. But I also equated it not because they were bigger, but because they were developing a skill, they had a skill. And they felt good about the skill didn't Mm -hmm. mean it was easy, because you got your, you know, ass kicked every day at practice. You know what that's like, when you walk into a gym, and it has that smell and you go, Oh, we're about to get punished. Mm -hmm. That's what practice was, right. And so I was like, Oh, okay. So being like, beautiful is probably not the answer. Wow. So I think, Growing up weirdly tall and then being around women of all different shapes and sizes, I was like, oh, I'm so drawn to these women that feel good about themselves, that have outside interests, and they are tough, and they're they're not afraid. You know, my daughter recently played in a tennis tournament, and she lost, and she, and she said to me, you know, the hardest thing is like, I was really embarrassed, because she felt that the girl wasn't maybe as strong as her, and mm-hmm. also, you know, sort of like... This big girl and not, you know, whatever. And tennis is a whole other story. But mm-hmm. I said to her, do you know how courageous it is to be willing to be embarrassed? Yeah. To be like, hey, this means something to me. I'm going to go out. And when if I lose, and we all lose, I'm going to be really uncomfortable. And I'm still willing to come out here. And I said to her, listen, that is the thing. You know, I think for me, it was so clear so early. And I was so interested in survival that all that stuff was like way down the line. I had roommates, you know, in college that played ball. They, I had one that wrestled with the, you know, body image and being smaller. And certainly in fashion, you would see it. I think I had so many other bigger things ahead of that. Mm-hmm. It, or it just wasn't one of my triggers.
1: I really appreciate you sharing that emotional vulnerability. That's such a cool concept. And Brooke Ziegler sitting here with us, she she does such an amazing thing, capturing women's boudoir and shooting mm-hmm. you know, women in all sorts of shapes and sizes, all different ethnicities, backgrounds, and stories. One of the things that I think is so rad is she makes all things beautiful mm-hmm. by capturing the in-between. And, you know, I, th- I think that's a huge depiction of what you just described where it's like if you're enjoying what you're doing, the confidence shows, yeah, right? And I, th- I think that's so cool that you didn't even pay, pay attention to it because you were so focused on, you know, goal setting and pursuing things that felt good to you. Yeah. You know, that's such a cool thing. So how'd you go from modeling and college volleyball to later playing on the AVP? Mm-hmm
0: once I was out of school I moved instead of moving to New York to work full-time I it was going to be tough for me to be in New York all year round so I moved to Miami okay and that is actually where I picked up beach volleyball so I was about maybe 20 almost 21 Mm -hmm. and I started playing beach volleyball and then when I was 22 this woman Barbara Bierman I'll never forget Barbara Bierman (laughs) she had a real job and she was in her 30s and she was a more technically sound beach volleyball player than I was and she's like, you should move to California and try to really play for real. And I was like, yeah, okay. And so I did. Wow. And I moved to California at 22. But something important happened, which was the four-person tour opened up exactly at that time. Uh, okay. And that was in 1992. And so when I moved to California, I was a practice dummy for great players like Holly McPeak and others that were playing on the doubles tour. However, I got drafted to the four-person beach tour. And it was very good for my game, my style of game at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I could excel quickly. And that really set me up for another level of success, where that, whether it was Nike deals or just, you know, continuing the perception of being at a certain level. Because I would have gotten my ass a lot, more on the ABP and had to work my way through on the doubles coming from sixes and coming a, from being a big player in sixes mm-hmm. where all you're doing is hitting and blocking mm-hmm. and beach doubles is you're covering the whole court. It's a completely different game. Yeah. And so fours made that transition so much easier because I was practicing outside. I was dealing with the elements win, good side, bad side, I was having to pass balls. I was having to set off transition balls, things like that. However, it just gave me a place where I could be really still, performing and putting up numbers, which when you're trying to be a professional, and you're trying to represent companies, that's important. Mm -hmm. And then I could transition over uh, years later. And you know, we had ESPN deals, like it was a, and it's a really fun, fast game. Mm -hmm. Fours is a really fun game. And so I again, that was sort of like, you know, uh, my very good fortune. Yeah, so then that that's how I I did all that.
1: That's very cool. I definitely think six to four is way easier than going six to two. That's bru- That would be brutal.
0: Yeah, unless you were like a five foot ten setter mm-hmm. who had good passing skills. Mm-hmm. Because if you're five ten, you can hit the ball. Typically, and you know, you'll see a lot of the great beach players are like five ten to six feet, and mm-hmm. then you're really in trouble if you have somebody who's six two six three. But they do everything that yep. a five nine five ten. But you just find like with the wind and the amount to cover, it's like a six foot player mm-hmm. that's really in
1: the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. How did you adapt from the hard court to the sand? What was that like covering ground? And then obviously, as you mentioned, the elements in relation to the wind and whatnot—that's definitely a different factor.
0: Yeah, I always, I always felt I was catching up in volleyball mm-hmm. in college, <laughs> in the pros. I was like, okay, <laughs> like I felt like I was always trying to learn and keep up. It was always because again, I didn't pick up the beach game literally like a year before I turned pro. Mm-hmm.
1: What was that like on the pro tour? Did you have a coach or a mentor, or what was that like?
0: Yeah, it's different though because you pay your coach,
1: of course, right?
0: So they tell you what to do, but somehow you're paying them. But it's you know, but I, I always believe that if you were gonna be, uh, you know, a successful army, your team, there had to be one general. Mm-hmm. So I think most of us, but it's tough because women professional athletes are different than college mm-hmm. <laughs> professional
1: athletes. How so? Can you elaborate on that a well, little bit? Well,
0: you have a lot more opinions floating around. You have like, these are the best of the best now. Now you've got the, now you went from the 1% of the 1%. Now you've got that 1% of that 1%. And so these are, these are strong people personalities mm-hmm. that's why they're part of why they're good and so you just had to have the right coaches that understood how to manage all those personalities i had some great coaches i had a guy uh, named gary sato who his family was kind of a volleyball family his brother eric and leanne both played in the olympic indoor teams wow. they're exceptional family mm-hmm. He was a great coach i learned a ton from him because we're so opposite he's a very compact guy very quick just understood the whole other part of the game that i I didn't know anything about good ying a, to the yang for sure. Big time, great coach. It wasn't like a, you know I didn't need a big guy to be my coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that transition is so humbling. And any player that does it, usually you're just like, what? How could I be this slow? Mm-hmm. How's my jump this low? You know, like the transition is it's it's a it's similar conceptually, but there's so many now you get to play with the wind. Now you really, there is a definitive good side and bad side, especially if there's wind and there's deep sand and shallow sand. And like, who's going to play better tournaments? We'd have athletes that played better in a hard packed because all of a sudden their jump was like making a difference. So it was, it's knowing all that, like, oh, she's going to be a handful in this tournament because she's going to hit over the block versus like, okay, it's deeper now. It's slowed down. Who's you know the more technical beach player is going to be better so it was it was just learning all that nuance and and hoping that some of it became intuitive versus like okay so it's blowing out of the west so now what's going to happen you know it's
1: just trying to make that intuitive. Mm-hmm. What was the lifestyle adjustment moving you know from the east coast then to the west coast? I'm sure that was a definite lifestyle adjustment for you as well at such a young age.
0: I think it was. I think culturally though, like it's like any of us when you're going somewhere to uh, you know pursue a goal and pursue. um, you know, a dream, if you will. I think you're like, and plus it's, I mean, I'm playing beach volleyball, like, uh, Oh, I'm at Manhattan beach. And like, Oh, poor baby. She's out in, <laughs> you know, Santa Monica at state beach. Like these are really great places. Uh-huh. So that part, you know, and I'm a be, you know, beach person was pretty great. I think, uh, you know, listen, it's hard. Like you have to train a lot. Mm -hmm. And I was always juggling so many other things. I was saying to you early before we started going, like then I started doing TV and before I'd go to my own tournament, let's say in Florida for Saturday and Sunday, I'd stop. Like one time I had to stop on a Friday in Austin to interview Lance Armstrong before I had to go on to my own tournament. Mm -hmm. And so it was like also trying to shift gears and be able to concentrate and get sleep and do all these things. And then you're training all the time.
1: Would you have wanted it any other way? Or do you kind of thrive in the chaos?
0: No, I liked it. And I was in, I had been doing that already in college, I was managing school, volleyball, you know, working in New York. So I I had been managing quite a few big things already. And so it just trained me how to do it. And and what was most important when, Mm -hmm. you know, like there were times and I always say that to people, it's not that Uh, I do everything really well at one time because I do a lot of different things. It's I understand what needs my full attention at which which time and I organize to the best of my ability. Sometimes I blow it weekly. Uh, What has to happen now? Mm -hmm. And so I I say like in a way when you have a lot going on is, is sort of view it horizontally and just so you're familiarized and you know the landscape. And then flip it once you put it in order of importance, so you only have one thing coming at
1: you at one time, and that. say, "This is what we're doing now," because it's ridiculous. That's such a great analogy. I can like visually see this. Yeah, exactly and just what you're but, about. but
0: make sure you understand. That's why um, one of the things I do that helps me is I because I, Matt, remember, I manage my schedule, my children's schedule, Laird's schedule. We have no agents or managers. We have an attorney. Yeah because what I learned a long time ago was that it was gonna end up on my plate anyway. Mm-hmm. So I might as well do it, and then I know how it's getting done. But there's a lot of moving pieces. And mm-hmm. so that's why I also have a written out calendar. Because I'll, I can look at certain weeks and go, man, that week is starting to really s- stack up in an unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna push some of these other things into another week. And so I think it's really important for people to realize also to make things work in their favor. So if you're in season, then, you know, I'm only going to do anything extra that I have to. When I'm out of season, then I'm going to try to load up on all that stuff when I can. But really reminding people that it's important to make sure that you're protecting yourself, your physical health, your sense of
1: well-being to the best of your ability while things are hectic. Mm -hmm. I love that. I mean, in in spending... A little bit of time around you. The quote from John Wooden really resonates with me. Be quick, but don't hurry. Yeah. You're always very patient and kind of meticulous with the things that you do, but you always find a way to kind of chip away at the the most important tasks. And I think that's such great advice. I really love that that picture you just painted. Horizontal view and then flip it so you're very present on one thing at a time. Yeah. That's, That's a very, very cool mindset. You know, when you were going through that volleyball progression did you ever go from 4 down to 2 or did you stay with 4
0: no i did go 4 to 2 and i did that for a couple of years i also uh my knees really started bothering me the problem for me is i have a very deep love for volleyball because in in certain ways Volleyball kind of really saved me, like in the way that sport is supposed to, Mm -hmm. you know, like all the life lessons and the mentors and like, oh, I got out of there. And then I got to college and went to college for free. And, you know, at least in the beginning, and I wouldn't have been able to. So I think my connection with volleyball is, it's like profound, but because I'm also an intense realist, I started knowing that if I wanted to do anything else in my life, I should start sooner than later Oh wow! and not play until I was... 38 or 40 and be like what am I going to do now Mm -hmm. so I kind of started to exit volleyball around 30 31 because I did have other things that I I probably thought I was going to pursue and then I did play a little bit they asked me one time to play in a four person they were trying to bring four person back because it Kind of went, you can't have competing uh, disciplines. Yep. Volleyball is too small. They can't yep. even have two football leagues. They can't have. Yeah, there's no hard. way. They were trying to bring fours back because it is a very good feeder system to get all the college players mm-hmm. to doubles. But now they've got beach volleyball in college, so they're that's taken care of. But I came back. Once I played pregnant, that was a lot of fun. Wow. Yeah. What was I, that like? I played up to five months pregnant. Well, your jump is just terrible. Yeah. <laughs> And then people are like, do you have a beer gut? Because also a lot of volleyball players or athletes in general, it takes a long time to see that they're pregnant. And a lot of times you'll even still be kind of muscular, but Mm -hmm. then it's like, have you been drinking beer? Like, what is going on? You know? (laughs) So you're kind of like, hey, you know? And then um, I also played a little bit when I was 40. Okay. Yeah. I think I always know when it's like time to move into something else. Mm -hmm. And even though it was part of my identity, I've always been careful,
1: really, really careful to not get so wrapped up in anything mm-hmm. uh, that was going to be my next question, because the concept of retirement in any sport when it 's been your identity for so long you know can lead to depression you know or 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 challenging things within lifestyle. What was that transition like for you? It sounds like you kind of made the decision mentally, you dabbled with it here and there to satisfy you know some of your craving for competition, but what was that transition like into you know the world of business and kind of what you're doing now, which is the life of an entrepreneur.
0: Well, I think as long as I had training, which I have a very rigorous training life, I feel like that part of me was okay. It doesn't mean like you know every once in a while in sport you practice so much and you get really finely tuned, and that's really a lot of fun to be that tuned at something, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, there's it's sort of like a speed and a timing. It's it's all this stuff that's really cool, but. I think, uh, well, a couple of things. I think I talked to a lot of people about this and I've said, listen, if you've gotten to compete, like let's say in college, even people get bummed out and I'm like, okay, but how fortunate are you that you got to be experienced that level of excellence? Cause most people don't typically. Mm-hmm. So rather than being completely tortured the whole time by that, that is gone to look back at it fondly and to go, I'm so fortunate that I got to I experience like that. That's super you know, cool. At, ex- at that level of excellence. But the other thing that's really important to to note, and I had a kid actually who came to an XPT event before uh, corona, really talented kid from Clemson football, knees not so good, both of them, wasn't going to go on. Big, strong kid, probably was going to think to play in the NFL, at least have a shot, and then got through college. and So it was a senior year, and I was like, what we have to remember about athletes, most of them, is you're kind of like a loaded gun. So you just have to pick your next target you know, and not think that, oh, I'm a volleyball player. It's like that reworking of like, no, I'm Gabby. And one of the things I have done is play volleyball. And to remind people that like your power is you, is your spirit. Your power isn't that you were very good at this one thing, regardless of what people say to you. And that means don't buy into that either. Mm -hmm. Like you're not extra special because you could do that either. It was like, wow, lucky for you that you got put in the environment and you had the skill set, and you had the right people. But also believe in that, you know, Ryan Holiday talks about like body of evidence. So when you go into new things, you go, I don't know what I'm doing, but I do have other experiences that have shown me I have a chance to figure it out. Yeah. And, and only to focus on the things that you can control. Like how hard am I going to work? What kind of attitude am I going to bring? If they say eight o'clock, can I be on time? I can be on time.
1: I love that narrowing mindset of like controlling the controllable that you're referencing. But also when I came back from Sweden, I was in LA for a little while and I remembered people were always like, Hey, what do you do? Mm. And I remember that question was so tough for me because it was like, what you do does not define who you are, right? Who you are defines who you are. Yeah. And I mean, Laird and I chatted for a very long time about, you know, the, the goal for him. And he talked about the varying hats he wears as you know, an athlete, a parent, a businessman, a husband, a father, so many different things But the overarching concept and principle was be a good person, Mm. right? And, you know, if if all these other things outvalue being a good person, then we need to restructure, you know, that that value system. And it sounds like you did a very good job in grooming that within yourself through your volleyball career.
0: Yeah. And I just think that I knew that I had to answer to myself even Mm. when I was very, very young because I was isolated a lot. So I remember having to answer to myself and. Listen, I think overall I'm oriented towards, you know, I'm not overly self-destructive. I'm oriented naturally towards certain things. But then within that, right, you've got to work on the ego and you have to work on like I have, I armor up. So if I go like, oh, why are you armoring up? Probably because I'm afraid, right? So it's like going, okay, well, you don't need to do that anymore. That story's over. Mm -hmm. Like you're not a little kid anymore. You're not vulnerable in that way. So you don't need to be angry. Like just, I start pressing into everything. And I realize that I have one daughter who's really sensitive and it, she really doesn't like it. Like, mm-hmm. I'll be like, well, what do you mean? That alone? Like she'll say, well, sometimes, you know, I, I've been expected to be more mature, like an adult. And I'm thinking, cause my whole goal as a parent was like, let me do as much for my kids as I can, because people didn't do that for me. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like an overcompensation. And I remember being like, well, in what way? Wow. And that alone set her, she didn't like that. Mm -hmm. She's like, yeah, don't get angry. And I'm like, oh no, this isn't angry. But I realized that I have certain traits that I understand why they're there, but that you go, yeah, be a good person and start to like deal with your crap too. The crap that got you there, like that's a great trait, Mm -hmm. but like that, you don't need that. You know, there's sort of like a refinement that hopefully is happening and parenting will definitely like, you can either look at it or not. And either way you will be forced to at some point, hopefully not only like on your deathbed, but you will be forced to look at a lot of things.
1: I think it's so special how you have such a, such a unique ability to self-reflect is there like within your personal training through your your breathing protocols, is there a meditation or are there guiding principles that enable you to kind of self-reflect on experiences like that in parenting or within life that enable you to kind of check yourself and then either let go, hold on or Mm -hmm. reframe certain situations to serve you better in the future? I
0: don't know if they're guiding principles. I just think they're the ones that you go, you know, if you're telling the truth or not, the Mm -hmm. real truth, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're acting out of, your ego and like being short with the situation versus being compassionate or empathetic or celebrating that someone else is doing great i think it's about just trying to stay in the side of things that it's going well is this emotion coming from a place that is better than not you know like because also i'm a competitive person like i'm in different ways way more competitive than Laird, right Mm -hmm. like the joke is like Laird will surf and be in these giant waves and do all this stuff for the experience like he'll go let's go to the mountain and I'm like what's on the line Mm -hmm. you know like I'm really hardwired that way so I think also working in sports with very strong very talented women then you go into modeling and they're like really beautiful and very successful so I got to deal with that one early which is like wow you're badass I celebrate you good job now I'm liberated, right? I don't have to feel competitive. I don't have to judge myself against you. I can just celebrate you. Now, as a 50 year old woman, I can see a young, badass, 22 year old girl and be like, Congratulations. You know, I can celebrate you. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just being clear, always with yourself. And what's been really helpful is I can also, if it's like really an ugly one, which for me isn't usually so bad, but it's still, you know, like you go, oh, that's ugly, is I can say to Laird truthfully, Like I had this reaction and I know where it came from and I can verbalize it. Because Laird has also taught me like feelings don't have to be good and bad. They can just be feelings. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes... That's amazing. I love that. But it's true. And sometimes if just identifying to someone that you trust, hey, I was really shitty today inside. Like I felt it. Like I was ugly and I I just wasn't being disciplined or I just wanted to have that reaction. Because it does. It takes like more patience and more discipline to be like... Oh, okay. I see that, but I'm not going to react that way. And some days you're just like, yeah, I'm reacting that way. Mm -hmm. So I think it's also helped to have somebody. And listen, I've had a few years. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't call
1: myself old, but I've had enough where I should be learning this by now. Mm -hmm. I would think. I, I would also say like just spending time with the two of you guys. Yeah. You've had a few years. Yeah. You've been around the block a few times, but you both, and I said this to him a little while ago, you both maintain a childlike mindset just that genuine curiosity, right? And his is, you know, in the ocean and, and exploring And I see yours a little bit more mental, mm-hmm. which I think is really, really cool and really special. What are some of the things that, you know, stand out to you in your time as a parent? You know, what, what are some of the things that you've kind of crossed paths with as a mom, other than kind of what you just described that mm-hmm. like you think would be valuable to our audience? You know, there's a lot of phases in parenting, right? Like
0: there's the initial when they hand you a baby and you think, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I inside know what I'm doing, right? Wow. there That happens. Just trust that. It's And it's also a very personal experience. So you'll meet certain parents who put their kids on schedules and certain kids, people who don't. And so make sure to trust yourself in that process. You will be exhausted. Your relationship will go through a uh, transition, right? Especially like it's the first baby. It was just the two of you and then now it's the baby. So I I would say that um, I would be patient with one another through that process. Um, I've also often said this to men, and I never give too much advice about this, but I would say that it's so imperative to treat your partner at that moment like your girlfriend Mm -hmm. because she's already shifting in so many ways. Her physique is shifted even temporarily just to have the child. Her life is upside down, even if it's great. She doesn't need you to act like, like I've heard guys like, How's my, you know, like the little mommy doing? I think it's really important that you don't do that, especially like if you have a nursing mother. Mm-hmm. There's no higher state of being a mother, like you're nursing. So what you need is someone to treat you like a human being, mm-hmm.
1: make okay. you feel loved and feel sexy. In yeah, that, in like that you're that moment. a person
0: separate from it, even though that's the most powerful, and you want to be there, and it's a draw and it's temporary. In that moment, if I I could say to the partner. Mm, Treat them like your partner.
1: That's some amazing advice.
0: Because later, right, it feeds into back into the dynamic of the relationship and the romantic elements of the relationship versus now we're business partners or partners on raising children. Also separately, how do we defend the relationship, right? Mm-hmm. It's important because also in a heterosexual dynamic, let's say, where if the woman had the baby, if the man understands how to do that, he will then probably be. Be creating the dynamic of the energy he wants back mm-hmm. which is to be adored and loved and appreciated mm-hmm. but if he's like how's my little you know it's like okay
1: you feel ostracized a little kind
0: of or just it's not going to get he's not going to get that thing that he's probably hoping for, sure. for so i would say that and then when they're two to you know seven they're I mean, it's all really cool. It's very tiring, right? Like all of a sudden. And so if you're a working person or a working woman, I would say just believe that who you are will still be there on the other side of that. And if you feel drawn to stay home with your kids, don't be scared that you will lose that window altogether because you won't. But if you feel to go to work or you have to go to work, then then you're showing them an example of, what having to work looks like, and that's good too, Mm -hmm. right? So it's always about reminding yourself there's something really valuable happening, whether you're staying home or or going to work. Then where where it really gets interesting is when they're about 12 and you're dealing now with social media and electronics and what have you. And what I will say that I have come out with, so we have a 25-year-old, almost 17, and 12-year-old, three daughters, is actually we're probably not supposed to get it right. And there are people who come out of houses and they go, my, my parents are amazing and that's cool. And that is a very unique dynamic. I think what happens is, is like, you go, am I too tough on them? Am I not tough enough on them? Do I give them too much? Don't I give them enough? I should have read to them more. It's like all this stuff that you're always hammering yourself about always. And I think once we accept humbly that if we try to show up and do our best And like when we know for sure we blew it that we have to apologize and also to listen to really unpleasant things about yourself because your kids will sit and tell you Mm -hmm. and they might not even be right, but you could just listen, right? Especially if they're making like an earnest effort to really express their feelings. They're not just trying to be like mess with you, right? Mm -hmm. That it's not, you're not going to ever feel, I don't think, killed it. Wow. I think it is the one thing and Laird and I talk about this a lot it's like, maybe you're not meant to get it right. So you just humbly show up every day, do it the best you can. If you have learned something new, that's better. Take it. It's a constant
1: pursuit of trying to, to trying to catch excellence, but it's always a little bit ahead.
0: And it's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And they also have stories about you. Like they'll leave your house with like a completely different reality than you did. Mm-hmm. Like my experience in that house was this. And it's like, is it? You know, was yeah. it? And so within that is a really interesting lesson of you can't really control another person. Yeah. And you can't you can't get them to think about it or see it the way you do. So what you can do is you can show up. You can try to accept them really for who they are, which is very hard to do as parents, because mm-hmm. you want them you want it to be easier for them and you want them to be how you think they should be. And the fact is is that is not what happens. They are really who they are, and you think, oh, that's going to be a tough lesson or. Maybe you won't have friends. I don't know, like
1: whatever we think. What's it like when you can almost foresee the struggle that they're about to go through? You want to arm them with the tools in their toolbox to not go through the struggle. But at the same time, you know that on the other side of the struggle is the lesson that they need.
0: I think you mentioned it. Because it's almost like a friend coming over and you know there's a giant pothole in the road and you go, hey, just so you know, like when you hit my micro one, there is a huge pothole. If they hit it because they weren't paying attention, you kind of go, well, at least I said something. And it's really (laughs) painful to watch and you don't want to, but you understand you kind of want them to get as many of them as they can while they're actually living with you. Because then once they go out in the real world... You know, no one's really going to love you and soften the blows as much as your parents. Mm-hmm. So you're hoping like when your kids start making mistakes, secretly think, okay, well, I'm grateful because they're actually here under my roof mm-hmm. and I can help be a sounding board or go, well, did you ever think of this or whatever? But it's all, yeah, it's awful. Yeah, it's supposed um, to be hard. Yeah. And it's, and it's unavoidable and you just be thankful when they get through them. And like Laird says to me sometimes, cause I'm obviously more of the worrier we've gone through certain things with the girls and he's like, Oh my God, just live to 25. You know, <laughs> like sometimes it literally gets down to that. Yeah. Like just survive mm-hmm. because then we can work stuff out. Like, but if you're not around, we can't. So and sometimes we go like, what school are they going to go to? And what career are they gonna have? Yes. Yeah, scratch all that. Just make it.
1: But like, I think one thing that's really cool just in watching year two dynamic, I think um, I just finished doing some pool stuff with Luca today and I was in the sauna for a while. And Laird was, you know, just walking past the pool and you were having a conversation and he walked over and just kissed your shoulder. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I thought it was so cool because your children get to observe and watch true love. You don't have to tell them, right? And now when they go into the world, they get to, you know, pursue whatever their relationships are going to be just through observation, which I think is so special. You know, that concept that you said, like always be dating, right? Like treat them as if they're always your boyfriend or girlfriend. Always. That's a a really special piece of advice. So as your girls have continued to get older, what have you and Laird done to make time for yourselves? Where you still get time to play. Mm -hmm. Maybe you incorporate the children with your play. Do you individually take your kids on dates? so You get that one-on-one time with them. What does that look like for you guys as you're not only personal high performers, but also mm-hmm. really successful business people as well.
0: I think because we have weird schedules, we don't have like date nights and things, but Laird will inevitably always take the girls, you know, individually some, you know, it's more about like he's taking them places and mm-hmm. where they want to go or they want to go to a friend. So he he's quick to go and just take them because if the window's there, he's, he's going to take them. Right. So I think it's, it's more about that. And as far as us carving time out for ourselves, the fact that part of our job is to work out and to be, you know, a semblance of fit. Laird is obviously in pursuit of large waves and that's why he wants to perform. I just need it for sanity. But also if I'm going to be like, let's talk about self-care, but I'm not doing it. People are going to look at me like, I don't think you're doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. I need to show up and people need to think, well, she's doing something right. Like, I don't know what it is, but something. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes, that's my time. Mm -hmm. If I get to train, Uh, that's my time. And then, you know, as far as Laird and I, I think it's like, you know, we, we, again, it's that, it's that temperature, like, Hey, you know what? We should probably sneak away, Mm -hmm. you know. So I think it's it's again, and I say this in training. People can go like, "Well, my day's off on Wednesday." Well, if you feel really good on Wednesday, but you're super tired on Thursday, maybe you should train on Wednesday and take Thursday off. I love that you
1: said that. And so sometimes people just get robotic to the schedule that's written down, but in reality, they gotta intuitively pay attention to how they feel.
0: Yeah, and I think also relationships like there are these like dynamic things, and sometimes it could be like, "Hey, we seem off kilter. Maybe we need to connect. I'm gonna we'll clear something or whatever," versus like, "Oh, we're good." So now redirect to other things. And then listen, we just went through this whole thing with Lured Superfood to get ready for an IPO. It was a lot of work. And yeah. everybody, congratulations, underst- by the oh, way, for going
1: public with thank you. that. Thank you. But um, it, such a great product.
0: Yeah, we're very, very fortunate. But the thing is, is that it wasn't like we were going to go, oh, let's, you know, it was like, no, suck it up. Like, w- this is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, we did like a one, I think one week we had 35 one hour Zooms in the week scheduled. Oh my goodness. So it wasn't like, you haven't looked in deep in my eyes. It's like, yeah, deal with it. Let's go next week. You know, like, so I think it's also being grown up Yeah,
1: and saying, hey. Having that underlying trust and maturity that like, hey, we got to get this stuff done now. Yeah. And we'll revisit the intimate lovey-dovey stuff when the time's right. Yes.
0: So I think it's, it's that, and again, it's, it is people are dynamic and life is dynamic and we all, and you guys, I'm sure talk about this all the time. The number one thing is what adaptability.
1: Oh yeah. So I mean, that was Harvard business reviews description of like the ideal entrepreneur, the ideal employee is adaptability because no one day is the same. Right. That's really great that you said that one of the things that I want to discuss a little bit with you for, for all the new parents out there, you briefly discussed your body's one way you go through you know the pregnancy process mm-hmm. your body comes out a little bit different what is it like to practice that patience with your body when you want to get back and do all the fun things that you could do before but you know that's not necessarily the best but cognitively you crave that feeling mm-hmm. like what is that for new parents out there
0: you know when you have a a, a new baby th- that expression of long long days fast years it's very true right like you could have one day and you're with your kid and you're like, oh my God, is it still the same day? And then all of a sudden you look and they're walking and talking and you go, when did that happen? So if I could just say to, to cherish that time, even though sometimes you're like, I'm bored, I'm forgotten, everyone's moving and going and I'm here because it is, it's a really quiet, beautiful, but very quiet time. And a lot of us are very uncomfortable with that because again, we think we should be productive and I, am I being forgotten is to enjoy that, that quiet and to be. Be realistic, you know? It's like, if you just had a kid, like, why would you talk about your loose skin on your stomach? Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, you just you had to stretch out to have my daughters were nine pounds it's like and also then knowing at what time to not to use that as an excuse any longer Mm -hmm. and also if you top load it this is another thing I always say especially pregnancy I didn't top load my pregnancy with like I want ice cream I want big I want I knew what I didn't want to eat but it didn't give me the carte blanche to like eat whatever I want Mm -hmm. because you're gonna pay yeah a week after my kids were born I was kind of look like me except you're just have different a little bit of different skin for a while on your stomach but that's also because i i wasn't i didn't use it as like uh, i eat tons of ben and jerry's if i if you feel good enough to move and a lot of women don't so i honor that too if you're not feeling good just do what you need to do to feel good but if you feel good move doesn't mean run a marathon just take a walk Mm -hmm. and every time you have an ice cream craving doesn't mean you have to have it Mm -hmm. because you will pay it's just you want to take a little bit off and keep going. And then when the baby comes, that recovery might be a little bit easier. By the way, after you give birth, like you can be pretty beat up. So I always say, like, you got to fortify yourself for that time. Because in certain ways, unless you are really mo- have a lot of morning sickness, which I honor, you're pretty powerful when you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Like, you probably won't get sick. Like you're pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. You're pretty bulletproof. Yeah. That's very, very cool. I appreciate you sharing that. We we're we're kind of at that age now where a lot of my close friends are starting to have babies and it's pretty cool to uh, see that journey. And yeah. I, I think that they'll be the very thankful to listen to your advice.
0: You know, let me make it even simpler. We're meant to. Yep. And so as much as it is a miracle, it's so profound. You're also meant to. So you're not the first person in history to, be pregnant and you can, you know, obviously connect with your doctor, but like it's natural. Mm-hmm. So be stay natural. Uh, Because I feel like it makes the whole experience as it should be, which for m- it, most dynamics, unless there's some ex- exception, someone's not feeling well, or they have a complication at birth, pretty organic, pretty natural. And it's really, I think important. We've become kind of so weirdly like sterilized in the world that we live in. And we have like, these, every gadget and every binky <laughs> and every little thing. And I actually would say, be careful of that. Cause there's a lot of cool stuff out there. Less of that though. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's you, it's your baby, you know, it's, it's just as natural as you can make
1: it. Absolutely. And, and then that's obviously what you guys are doing with Laird Superfood, right? Like Lots of different outside ingredients, the variable mushrooms, mm-hmm. bringing in the turmeric, combining that with coffee. I heard you're not a big coffee drinker, but you like mixing a little bit of espresso with hot chocolate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I did want to kind of touch on that briefly, but more importantly, you're very involved with XPT, mm-hmm. extreme performance training. You've mm-hmm. done an amazing job helping to create... Wide variance programs, kind of combining them into a pool setting with less impact on the joints. Where did that thought process kind of come for you? And how have you been able to make it a little bit more digestible for the world?
0: You know, it's, it's in all of our businesses, it seems to work like this, unless it's like the stuff that I'm doing all by myself, but anything that's like Laird and I, Laird is the genuine creative motor. Like the pool came from Laird going like, Oh, try this. And then there's a group of us here, Darren O'Lean and Hutch Parker and a bunch of us. And we all were like, crash test dummies and we'd work it out, right? So Laird is always really the creative one. Same with Laird Superfood. He was making all these drinks naturally and then shared it with a friend who then actually tried to figure out how to make the powder and here comes Laird Superfood. So my job always seems to be then, okay, how do you execute, deliver? But also what I say, for example, in XPT, I'm the weakest person in the pool. So I better, I have to, I really understand how it works because they all muscle it, Mm -hmm. all those boys yeah I'm a good swimmer, but I can't muscle everything. so the other thing is is I'm sort of like in certain ways like the householder mm-hmm. in the house. Laird's a whole other level, so I'm the one who like in Laird Superfood, how would that make me feel if I was going down the aisle? Would I want to try that? Would't I? So I look at everything as the beginner, as the householder in a different lens, yep. And so when it comes to communicating like an XPT and things like that, and thank God we have PJ Nestler and, and people like that who are so brilliant, but it's also, I know how to break it down because I had to. Mm-hmm. It's like I tell people when they come, I'm like, listen, trust me when I tell you, because I've done it all the wrong ways. Mm-hmm. Larry can do it the wrong ways and still do it. I probably can't. And That's s- really
1: fascinating. That's like a recipe for a really incredible coach.
0: Well, yeah, because you just by discovering one thing, I'm like, I'm giving you all the secrets, Mm -hmm. I will give you all the secrets, but you have to believe me. And I'll say you in the beginning won't even believe me, then you'll try it. And then you'll it'll be 13% easier or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's all of that. And it's, it's all it's just about uh, responsiveness. I'm the one expected to be responsive. Laird needs the freedom to be like, I'm going to pursue chasing a swell or just whatever. He's not going to work well if we load him up with a calendar. Mm-hmm. So I think being responsive is is my thing. Understanding who we are individually. Like if things don't sound right, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't feel right. So making sure that the things coming out of whether it's XPT or Laird Superfood uh, match who we hopefully are and who we're trying to be which is also this thing of like we're not here to tell anyone how to be we're just wanting to say like hey we've che- we've tried this we've kind of organized it into a system if it appeals to you then you might benefit too but i i get allergic to like uh we got to do this and it's the only way to do it and it's the best thing ever it's like no not really i mean it's pretty badass and the pool training is
1: extraordinary But that's got to be that person's discovery. Mm -hmm. I just love the open-mindedness, which allows for constant innovation, constant adding of value. There's very limited stagnation with the the model of XBT because there's constant variance. I mean, playing on how Laird shifted the assault bike and just a a slight variance within angle changes the stimulus completely and Mm -hmm. can be very, very relevant for a wide variety of athletes.
0: Yeah, especially ones that are really high level because then it's like, okay, you've already been doing that. So let's, now you're ready to go to the next, right? So I think it's always doing that and not being, you know, dogmatic about things and staying open. Once, you know, it's interesting, like uh, with PJ or Mark or whatever, when they when they come over, what I really appreciate is both Laird and I respect them so much that they if they go, hey, do you want to try this? We go yeah. Now if I don't trust you or I don't like you or I don't know you mm-hmm. and you're like a know-it-all, I'm probably not going to be super receptive. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's always being open to things can be done a better way. And also this could be for a time and a season and then it might be something else. Yeah. You know. And certain things like you should go to bed early, you should be hydrated, managing stress, these are going to be universal, you know, pillars for all time. But it's also realizing like hey, we're always learning and newing, doing new things. The thing that makes me interested, though, is how everyone's into hacking everything right now because of technology. Mm-hmm. And so my only thing is to remind people, too, though, like uh, hacks work when you're already doing a lot of the right stuff. Yep. It's just, to me, gibberish or long-term. The long-term ramifications might be something you don't want to deal with. But it's more like, hey, if you're doing all the right things and you get some hacks, that the worst thing would be that nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Those would be the interesting ones. But there is no substitute for tension on the system.
1: Oh, I totally agree. And so... I mean, that kind of dials in the concept of simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Right. If you're not doing the simple things well, why add complexity? Yeah. You know, w- if I were to, um, you know, since the world really likes like this or that right 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 now yeah what are like five things that you know you would say must be like foundational staples for self-care
0: I went into college in 1987 if that gives you an idea how long (laughs) I've been thinking about moving around and before it was like about metrics like right vertical jumps and like calories and all that but I think actually it has to start at the essence, at the one spirit and their real clear understanding of their why. So before you can even get into the five things, you have to really make it that it's valuable to you. Mm-hmm. Not something one other thing that you have to do, but that you cherish the gift that is your health. And even when you don't want to, you still understand that it's one of the most important things. So once you can get in a real relationship with that, and I think athletes who've been injured, I feel like when you don't even know if you can walk across the room without a crutch, you start to go, oh, wait a second, my health, like I'm not, I'll maybe not take it for granted. So I think it's starting there. And then, yeah, the basics. Okay, sleep is number one. There's nothing to talk about if you're not sleeping because mm-hmm. you're not recovering. And you're then you're moving into crazy chemistry because that's the other thing, right? We're just chemistry. Mm-hmm. I'm in a good mood, I'm in a bad mood, I have energy. It's like, Chemistry, so take care of that, and then I think for me, food is the one that I I notice impacts me the greatest. So hydration and food, we could put them in the same bucket because it's sort of like what you're taking. And for me, it's like figuring out the way to find moments of peace because if I'm just always revving and ramping and edgy and like. Hitting the marks and deadlines, I'm kind of missing the point. So I think just having that stillness to kind of do that check in mm-hmm. like, well, how am I doing? Am I mad? Is anyone mad at me? Do I need to apologize for something? Am I doing enough of this? Just I to have those that. moments. Just taking
1: a moment to, to check in and stillness. Yeah. That's Like really even cool. if like, wow, well, you kind of crappy
0: yesterday. You might want to get on top of I that. I mean, the
1: analogy I think of is like being in the pool, doing those beast makers with you guys. Mm-hmm. When it's super chaotic, what happens? There's bubbles everywhere. You can't see. Yeah. But then when you like slow down, it's not so chaotic. The bubbles go away. You get a little bit of more clarity.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that's important. And, and I think being around people that you learn from bars far as your self-care practice. So I always say sometimes you'll train with people and spend time with people that you actually don't hang out with that much. But in that pocket, you're more like-minded. So for people to understand, you don't have to make all your best friends your training partners, but you also don't have to make your training partners your best friends. That you might actually have, you know, different people for different things. And it's really important to have people smarter than you, so, you can learn. Don't have people that agree, like they train just like you, they move just like you. Do something with people, people that, that push are against different. the brain a little bit. I think so, because it keeps you, you expand and then no one's afraid, no one's locked in. And also, I hate to say this, and this is very female, and I don't care, I'll say it. You can't compete with every single person that you know. Mm-hmm. Like at some point, make it a collective that you're all trying to help each other versus like, step uh, on each other to get, I to think the next so. Ring. Cause I don't know for me that gets really annoying. And then I get, a, I, I start feeling like I want to, I don't know that I get aggressive and weird. And I think it's like a weird poison. Now, yeah. if you're brothers and like, you've done this your whole life and okay, he got you up the mountain today. Fine. If that, if you guys can do it, that's cool. But I find that it's better if like overall we're all, kicking our own asses and each other's, but in this collective elevated way, I think is important. And I I can't believe I'm saying this because this is so not me, but I would say that in somewhere in there, you have to find that you enjoy it. Yeah. You have to have fun. Like Laird is the fun guy. Me, I'm like, whatever. Like, again, it's like, what's the point? What's the end goal? And I've really tried to get better at that. So I think... It's the standard stuff. Like, I lift weights. I'm a female. You've got to have tension. And people have asked me that, like, if you're a girl, what do you think is more important? I actually think as you get older, you need to have resistance. Mm-hmm. And they got I don't want to get too big. That's my favorite statement. It's like, you know how hard it is to get big, but okay. Um, so I think you have to have resistance training in there as well. But really, it has to come from your why. Mm-hmm. It, if you haven't really made your bed about your why, you can't do it day after day month after month and year after year there's just no way you have to have that foundational concept it just, to give
1: you purpose to get out of bed
0: and there's too many other things to do yeah i mean personally i could sit at my desk all day long mm-hmm. and just you know do work in work and i think so it's so easy to find these other things and if you're a new mom because you asked about them i've said this a lot you may only get 15 minutes here and there when the baby's sleeping that's enough get it take it walk body squats whatever it is and also as your kids get older if you get that hour that you say or oh, mommy's carving out these 30 minutes and during this time you're going to be with dad or you know auntie so-and-so you unless someone is like dying that you're ferocious about that th- those 30 minutes because everyone that. will take it mm-hmm. and they're not being mean-spirited they have they need stuff they need snacks they need you know this or my husband needs to know where that is whatever they'll take it so in that moment You have to be gnarly and say, I'll get to
1: you in a few minutes. I love that. Thank you so much for your advice. And once again, thank you so much for being with us today. To conclude our conversation, I have some fun little hitters for you that are about 60 to 90 seconds that are kind of fun. What's one thing that you wish you would have known when you began your career? To stretch more me too. (laughs) And the taller you are, the least you want to do it unless you're naturally bendy. Yeah, for sure. What's your
0: biggest failure and what did you learn from it? I think my biggest failures have probably been in parenting. Uh, and there, I think it's an ongoing story. What I have learned is that it isn't about being perfect, but it's about being willing, even though it's uncomfortable to try to do things in a different way. Wow. That's very
1: powerful. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours?
0: My thing is, everything I've done is because it was a real natural extension of what I wanted to do. So my advice to anyone who wants to pursue anything is if you want to do it for attention, or you want to do it because you think you're going to make money, that's okay too. be honest about that. But I don't know that that's the path to like, Oh, now I I'm really enjoying this. So if I could just say that if you're really clear about your intention as to what you want to do and you could get up on the days that it sucks because it's hard then great but don't look too much left and right don't look around at people so much really try to follow your own gut because then that leads you to your special road which I think is so important versus well that they're doing that and that's really successful I'm going to do that no hold back from that and uh, really try to trust yourself The only other thing I would really say too, that's helped me a lot is sometimes you have to look at your business. So if you have a product or an idea, you have to be deathly passionate about it. But sometimes you have to step back and think nobody cares because that's the problem. People get caught up in thinking it's all so important Mm -hmm. that they lose sight of where it places in the big picture. So you have to be able to go back like nobody cares about you you're nobody knows who you are. Nobody cares about what you're selling. Uh, People don't even like whatever, because then you're working from a realistic point of view. Mm -hmm. I love that.
1: What are the best resources that have helped you along the way?
0: Well, just being willing to say, I don't know and can some, I like, I just went through this recently where some of this financial stuff, I'm like, I don't really understand part of it. So I just call people and go, okay, can you explain this to me? So I think being willing to learn to say, Hey, I don't know. Can you help me? Can somebody explain it to me? That's a really good one. And resilience, like you're going to get knocked on your butt every single day. Mm -hmm. And being able to take constructive criticism and not take it personal is really valuable because that just helps you get where you're, where you think you're trying to go at least. Mm -hmm. Who are three people who have been the most influential to you? I think probably my college coach, Dr. Cecile Renaud was highly, highly impactful. I don't think I would be here if my aunt Norette hadn't taken me in when I was a kid and gave me stability and love, it might've gone a really different way for me. You know, maybe I, I would have been really wounded in a way that I would have been harder to recover from. And I would have to say Laird because I live with Laird. You know, I always say whether Laird's even right or wrong, he's always willing to be himself. Mm -hmm. And believe me, he's not always right. But the courage to say, I'm in a trust myself and do it for my real reasons. And also if I have something to say to somebody, I will say it directly to them. There's a a confrontational nature to Laird that has really been helpful for me because as a woman we don't want to rock the boat too much. And sometimes if you're going to, especially in work, Mm -hmm. like if you're talking about work or sports, you have to drop off information and it's uncomfortable. And so uh, I think it's been really helpful to be like, I know you probably don't even like me but it's okay because i have to drop this information off. Mm-hmm. You know, well, that's hard for us typically. It's like it, you know, women will start emails with is that okay? You know, is this sorry i'm late or is was if that's okay with you and sometimes like i really think if you're going to just be in work or in sport.
1: It's like, hey, this is just, just how it is. Yeah. And yeah. and it's it's helpful. What is one common myth about your profession or field that you would like to to debunk?
0: Well, i don't know if it's about debunking. I just think that people have to really First of all, before they can adapt to any program, let's say they want to do a program, they really need to understand what foods work for them or not. Paul Czech used to talk about this 20 years ago. Maybe eat with this much animal protein and a bunch of vegetables and then eat maybe more vegetables and less. Maybe don't eat any animal protein. See how you feel, see your energy levels, see how you sleep, see your elimination. So I think first debunking is nobody can tell you what's gonna be best for you. They can make really good suggestions. But I think first, what's important is to know yourself enough to like, hey, get your blood work done first. Who are you? Figure out how you wanna eat. And then get in there. uh, But if you you think you're gonna have like a trainer and they're gonna babysit you and somehow that's gonna put you into miraculous shape or they have the answers, I don't actually think it's the case. I think it's the most important for the person to be their advocate. And if somebody is giving them a curriculum or routine that really feels good to them at that time, by all means, but that doesn't mean it's going to be the end all be all you'll have mm-hmm. to adapt and do something else. So I think it's not about debunking it. It's just about you understanding that
1: the health and fitness space is a tool. Mm-hmm. You made a really cool comment just with regards to understanding context and coaches being really suggestive, right? They can help guide you down the appropriate mm-hmm. path. And maybe that, that suggestion is appropriate for that moment in time. Yes. But not necessarily permanent forever. And just because it works for a few people doesn't mean it will work for everybody. Right. And so I love that. One of my favorite lines from uh, a really like successful strength and conditioning guy that I look up to is he was giving a YouTube video. And he said, hey, the things that I'm saying today... I may, co- mm. I, I, I may come out tomorrow and say that these particular things aren't yeah. true. And I thought that was so humbling. Mm-hmm. made me want to follow him more. Yeah. And so I definitely think that, you know, you sharing that wisdom we, is very helpful.
0: We say that at XPT a lot. We say, listen, we'll sharing what we know works now, but hopefully that's different in a year.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the key, right? Constant evolution. Yeah. You know, this is one of my favorite questions coming up. I stump everybody with it. Okay. If you could step into my shoes, what would you have asked you that I didn't ask?
0: Well, I guess I would ask, I would have asked me if I was maybe afraid of anything
1: or... What are you afraid of?
0: um, I I don't know. I think I'm afraid of not taking advantage of whatever opportunities or relationships are in front of me. And, you know, we're all temporary sort of stewards of talents, all -hmm. of us. Mm -hmm. And so I just hope that I'm a person that doesn't waste... Or is not frivolous with any of the temporary, you know, gifts or talents that I'm given? I wonder about age. Sometimes I, I don't, am not that freaked out about age, but you know, I don't know, maybe in five years that'll be different. Maybe <laughs> I'll be like, I'm really afraid of
1: getting old. I don't know. <laughs> well, I really appreciate your time and energy today. One of my favorite things about you is just you're unapologetically yourself. Oh. And that's something that I think, you know, all people can, can, can strive to emulate a little bit. You know, thank you so much for for your voice of reason and for constantly, you know, being there for Laird and all his fun and innovative and creative adventures. Thank you for starting the Gabby Reese Show. I love listening to you you and your podcast, you know, what you have to share on that platform. And thank you so much for, you know, the amazing content you share with XPT and your Instagram profile at Gabby Reese.
0: Thank you. Well, thank you for um, coming up and coming all this way to our home and and, uh, being willing to spend you know part of the day with us
1: absolutely thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Invictus Mindset podcast and don't forget stay on the hunt for who you've not yet become take care